You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Bracha, this is Closer Than Mishbacha. I'm here with her, Eitan Kobri. You could call him Rabbi Eitan Kobri if you'd like. Um, Eitan is a contributing editor to Mishbacha magazine, but as we say, here you're going to get Eitan closer than Mishbacha, especially banking on our relationship, which is predates the magazine and hopefully will be will be something of Netzach. It almost predates the Civil War, I think, coming up now uh that many years, aren't we? <laughs> Look, I could be could be listen. You know, I I sometimes wonder who I would have been in a previous Gilgal. You know, you sort of think that somehow your friends, since you feel such a kindred connection to them, Probably they were part of your Gilgal as well, right? It's almost like like if if somebody in you and someone else create a a big Kesher, is it possible that in a previous Gilgal you didn't have that person? Maybe that's the tikkun that you needed. Ramo, we've we've been rolling together a long time. <laughs> yes, yes. Who knows? Hopefully, Gilgal Mechayles will get us to where we <laughs> eventually have to go. Hopefully, it's been the Gogolins Chusai De Zakai. One Zakai next to the other. Yeah. Yes, well, Zakayim is definitely a good segue because we uh, talked about your book, Greatness, in our last discussion, which definitely, Anoshim's, uh, who were definitely, uh, had tremendous schoolies, Zakayim indeed. And we had such a nice response from a number of different quarters about that, that you and I thought that we could have sort of a part two, uh, which gave me a chance to hazard over even more of the book. But I want to start with, I guess, what, in a way, you have to start with when you talk about yeshivas in America, even though uh, Rev. Ruderman was already by uh, that yeshiva in Cleveland and in Arius Row. We have to talk about the tribute and, and, and what you put there about Rev. Aaron. We talked about his daughter-in-law and his son last time. And let's talk about this uh, Rev. Aaron Cutler entry, uh, not just a malach, uh, but a saraf. And and that really pertains to his passion, his his salavus, as we would say, the the intensity that was sort of permeated every single thing he did. Correct, a ball of fire, whose warmth and whose illumination warmed and, and lit up the American landscape in a very in a, in a time when it was very very barren. Before we started recording, I showed you something that I had seen in an article. Uh, a number of years ago, that uh, the Nesiva Sholem had sent his son to learn by Rav Aaron when Rav Aaron was in Eitz Chaim, because his shver had been Niftar of Israel Zalman. So even though technically Rav Aaron had the yeshiva in Lakewood, he also was spending a couple of weeks, or I don't know exactly how long, in Eretz Yisrael, because technically he was still the Rosh he was like the Rosh of Eitz Chaim. So uh, people knew about uh, the, the specialty of, of Rav Aaron, and people came to the Shiurim, and the Nesivas Shalom sent his son to hear Shiurim there too. And he came back and told his father that he, Mamish, couldn't understand anything that Rav Aaron was saying. It was so deep, it was so quick, similar to the way you describe it uh, in your book through the reminiscence of Rabbi Pear. But he also said that there was such a sense of uh, of power, a light, an energy. There was something different that he couldn't even comprehend and, and, and process what that was, but he knew it was changing him. 
And he said that 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 later the the son, who's now the son of a Rebbe, said that that this was the best time of his learning, even though he wasn't able to really grasp what Ravarin was saying. Just having Ravarin there and being in his presence and seeing him in action, his father gave a gather here, which I think is is unique. He said that you have seen my son examples of avasatir, and, and and between me and you, we've all seen that as well. Maybe sometimes we feel it within ourselves. The avasatera, the avasatera of a koliyung among, the avasatera of a rebbe, the avasatera of whether it's a high school rebbe, and that definitely has an influence. And you can see how that works with Rav Aaron, He said it was taivasatera, meaning the base element that we sort of like deaden and we sort of put in a closet and we uh, we sort of like don't allow that to spring out. Ravarin had that completely within Torah, that when he learned it was his whole mohus was shaku in it, and that was that power that perhaps made him like a freight train that was unstoppable. But everybody recognized what that was. And maybe that's that's part of that that saraf that you're talking about. And it's it's incredible that such a an engine, an energy should, as 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 I think Rabbi Pear's description indicates, should change basically American Bukhran, American kids who who were not used to necessarily um the depth that Ravarin was doing, who didn't have the same type of background, the Talmudim in Kletzkad. And it's it, it's really incredible how he was able to shape those Talmudim into Talmidim Davka, American kids that he felt were top Talmidim Chachamim. What's incredible, and I think I think this is contained within what you've been saying, is here was someone who was far from an accomplished communicator in terms of his speeches, his, the drushes that he would give, uh, as Rabbi Baer talks about in this piece, and his even his sheer that that the centerpiece of what he was as a marbitz taira again is something which the majority of his talmidim were, were unable to follow to the end. Some of them maybe got a general sense of where he was going with it. They were not able to comprehend the shiurim in, in in all their depth. So what was it? It wasn't his words. It was his mahus. It was his essence. It was the man, and yet without words. Uh, at his disposal, his his very essence transformed a country. Um, it's, it's a very unusual phenomenon. Especially, uh, I, I found fascinating the description that Rabbi Pear gave of the, that those the fifties in Lakewood. I had heard that it was very different than the Lakewood we know today. But what's really fascinating is is that Ravarin, although he is clearly the main influence of everyone there only showed up on Thursdays and Fridays and Shabbos, and I guess maybe a little bit of Sunday, and then by Monday morning, he was gone. And, and you know, our sense of a yeshiva, we, you in Staten Island, myself in Yisrael, I mean, the Rosh Hashiva is there uh, Sunday morning, Shabbos was sort of a day off <laughs> from the Rosh Hashiva, maybe, right? And here, it, w- it was the opposite, and now it also answered for me why it was so difficult to publish Shiurim from Ravadin, why it took so many years for them to come out. I heard that there were tapes that were made. I don't know what years they were made exactly. I know there's a Mahon in, in whether it's in Lakewood or not that develops them, the Shiur of Aaron. Uh, I know the, the fellow a friend of mine, Rothbert, is is very involved in it. I don't know where they come from, but 
it's it's now sort of understandable that most of the shiurim were done on Shabbos, right? Or on Mitzvah Shabbos, not necessarily a prime time to be able to have a tape recorder or to to write them down or, or for him to write them down. Because I don't believe, other than the chuvas are his in the Mishnah Sarvarin, but I believe all the, the Chidush Yasugis, especially what many people today consider a modern masterpiece, his Yesoidus and Hilchish Niske Shechenim, you might know about that. It's a prize gem. It, it sells out immediately. I was learning recently in a, in a Cheshen Mishpat Koyal, they were doing Hilchus uh, Niske Shechenim, and the Rosh Koyal said, can you somehow get for me uh, Ravarin on Niske uh, Shechenim, Mishnah Sarvarin? But it sort of explains that uh, phenomena, but where were they? I mean, the Dib- Rav Moshe came out with these voluminous Dibris, pages and pages of, of, of Shiurim, and there's notebooks still to come, we hope. But Rav Aaron, despite the Musr, which came out, it's, it's somewhat difficult. Uh, it, it didn't come out the same way we thought it did, right? Yes, although, uh, as we mentioned in the in the piece, there were human tape recorders. There were people, uh, right, pair names, one of them, or Mayor Hartstein, you know, people who were literally able to to recreate almost word for word what was going on. And and yet the pieces, as we know, uh, are, are still, you can break your head over them. It's not exactly Ramesh Shmuel Shapiro, uh, where, you know, it's sort of like bricks that you sort of have to meld together. But you definitely see uh, Ravaran's dakus of, of thinking um, to a point that is really astounding. And the fact that that he had such ashpa on Shabbos itself and the type of connection that he made to the boys uh, on every Shabbos, sitting with them, sleeping in the same uh, dormitory where they were, all of those things really uh, sound so strange to our ears. Even Rav Aaron's, you know, m- the, the Lakewood of today, I mean, it sounds like it's almost like a completely different velt. And you wondered, did it need this type of different type of origin story to be able to turn into the yeshiva that, that, that it is today? Maybe. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know about that, but, but there's no question that uh, when you look at the Torah world over the last uh, 50, 60 years, you see just how many of its most important personalities, most influential ones, are Talmidim of Rebaran from Natakufa. You see that um, he really uh, nurtured a very, very elite cadre of Tamir Chachamim and future Mashbiim. And um, they didn't need him there during the week. I mean, th- these were mature fellas, and they were, they were serious. It, w- it was a very, very serious place, I mean, where they were serious about what they were doing. They, by the way, they also um, they learned under conditions of great uh, hardship. I, I don't really dwell on that in the piece, but uh, just to share a story that Rabbi Pear, who features, of course, very prominently in the piece, built around an interview I had with him, a story he told me, which, which is not in, in this, but illustrates the poverty of the times. He said that uh, sometimes uh, at lunch or at dinner, they'd be served say, a bean soup or something of that sort. I don't recall what it was, maybe a cholent. And, and all of a sudden, somewhere in the dining room, get, again, couldn't have been that many fellas, right? We're talking about basically 60 to 70 fellas, you know, at its height in those years of the 50s. And all of a sudden, you'd hear from some, some corner of the dining room, someone would say, worm. And what this meant was, this fella had found a worm in the soup. 
but they had a psak, I don't know if it was from a baron or from someone else, that only when it was muhzik, only when they find three, that they, ha- they have to put down the spoons and stop eating. Motsi, the difference between motsi and muhzik. So someone would say worm, and Rabbi Per said they'd start eating quicker. <laughs> Before someone else found another one. That is a great Litvish story. Here, this is a Litvak. This is a Litvak. Wait till we have the Miyuta Motsui, where we have the Easter, <laughs> that we have to be Pirish. But it also shows, you know, that this was not the, the yeshiva world of today, you know, <laughs> when, <laughs> when they're, they're literally uh, awash in pleasures of the palate. I, I have to tell you that I have heard from many that Ravaran about, about how tough he was. Your piece really. You know, it has stories from Rabbi Pear about how caring he was, how much he loved the Bokram, but he was tough with them. And I heard he was he was generally, of course, a very strong-willed person. And we 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 know about that in terms of uh, how he dealt with Balabatam, how he dealt with lines that he would never cross. But but I have to tell you, Eitan, the story that you that Rabbi Pear through you conveys uh about a, a Bokram who came to him. Uh, who loved, wanted to learn, was crying that he needed to learn. And he came and he ended up being in Kailo there for many years. And as the story goes, and I'll read it to you from the book itself, the fellow was a Yosem, the only child of a refugee mother. The Rosh Hashiva wanted the Bachram to be in Yeshiva Rosh Hashanah, but his mother called him up to come home. She cried to him on the phone, a little bit of emotion there. So he got on the bus and went home. He'd only been home for a few minutes when the phone rang. It was Rosh Hashiva calling to speak with his mother. She took the phone and spoke for a few moments. The son heard her say, Cher, cher. She hung up the phone and told him, Go back to Yeshiva. He asked what Rosh Hashiva had said, but all she said was, I didn't understand what he said to me, but you have to go back to Yeshiva. When I think of this story, I want to cry for the tsar of that mother. But the Rishiva was making Benetera even out of boys wearing purple pants, which he was wearing before. And you're not going to be a Benetera unless you're davening Yeshiva on Rosh Hashanah. Now, you know, I'm wondering, and put it in that place, you know, had I been in, in that situation, the hearts, would have, like he said, like Rapper says, would have gone out. Here's a, an Almona by yourself with nobody. And Rav Aaron calls up. After the boys already open, says you've got to come home because you've got to be in the Yeshiva Rishonah. It's a really tough story. Let me put it in some perspective. First, the first thing is to begin with the paragraph before that one. Rabbi Per says that this story was told to him by the fellow himself. He had lived in Borough Park, met the Rosh Hashiva there as an 18-year-old, wearing purple pants and sporting a double-decker chup of hair. And he said to Rabbi I want to come to the Yeshiva. Baron said to him, I have to fahare you. I have to, I have to uh, give you a test. The fellow said, you can't fahare me. I don't know anything. Shiva said, Vilst learning? You really want to learn? And he answered, yes, I want to learn. He told him to come. So first of all, we're talking about someone who would have been lost, would have absolutely lost, certainly to Tyra and perhaps even to Yiddishkeit without this. Rashiva called up not to speak to the, not to tell the fellow, come back. He has to speak to the mother. Would not have done it had she not agreed. But what's most important is, is that Rabbi Aaron was taking the long view. He wasn't focused on this moment. And it's true. He wasn't going to be moved by an Amman's tears because he knew that what he was doing, he was doing for her, for posterity. And I, I assume that this fellow now has 
that that Almona now has Eneklach and Ir Eneklach. I'm sure she's in the other way, MS already. But he was doing something that he knew in the long run was going to give her a shame in the Shairis in this world and the next. So, yeah, it's stealing yourself. It's stealing yourself on behalf of the Almona. Right. And it's an, 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 it's an, an, it shows incredible strength, which most people, I believe, would not be able to have, have resisted. Most people, I think, would have bent. Would have melted. Would have melted at the tears. Sure. Another story that, that I liked a lot uh, that Rabbi Pear, through you, discusses is that Rav Aaron understood at one time that they, Lakewood wasn't just going to be a mukam miklot for the boys to be away and just learn and, and, and be away from the city and be able to steig. When he realized that there still was a community there and there were Balabatim and living in the community. So, and, and I guess this might be the, uh, the origin story of the Lakewood community coil, but because, you know, here, here you saw that, uh, in Lakewood, uh, Rav Aaron told Rav Pear and Rav Chaim Zelikovich, uh, that they should start learning with Balabatim in Lakewood. They weren't yeshivish about them in any way, shape, or form. Some of them weren't from Bechlau, but they wanted them going out and teaching these chavritayrak. The anachrayas of being around people means you, can't, you just can't have a yeshiva in an ivory tower. So I, I really enjoyed uh, this part. So it turned out, this is right, my pair talking, there was a very from Bukhar who came over to me and said, you should know that you're even many surim daraisa every time you teach a class because you're teaching them Taira and they're not making birkasa Taira. I said to him, you know what? I'm going to ask the Rishi Shiva. He's the one who told me to do it. So I went and I asked him about it. He got very upset. Kobri translates. By the way, you seem to love the Yiddish. As much as Mark Twain loved putting in the dialects of various characters, you love putting in all these Yiddish statements. I know you do. Ramo, I ask you, can the English translation possibly compare to the sweet to the sweetness and the pungency of the uh the original? Right. So translation, what kind of foolishness is this? You want to draw a Jew close? Well, okay. That's a bad translation, Eitan. And you have to tell him, wait a minute. You first have to figure something out. But you're right. Again, first of all, we know the psak is that it's, it's the birchas ha-teir is a matir, but you're still, it's still, you're still allowed to learn teir. You're not over in Isser when you learn teir without birchas ha But this narisha, chenyokish frumkite, which unfortunately sometimes still rears its head and here you see Ravara like cutting to the chase like it's not even it's not even a shayla right and it's not because well since we're being makariv we don't have to worry about it there's a logic to it which is if you tell the person and he's going to start what this is crazy i have to make a bracha first it's not just um we're moderate because he can't make brachas or whatever it's that if you if you even Think of things in such a way for this person, that's the ultimate turnoff. And I think that's something which, unfortunately, many people in Kirov don't understand, which is, you know, <laughs> I want to teach you something, but well, it's like, yeah, yeah, you got to make, you got to make beer there first. What? What is this? Some sort of crazy ritual here? Well, what's going on? Am I, am I an estrig? And I think that that's the ultimate turnoff when a person, like he says, you, you, you don't want to be seen 
as just an object. You want to be seen as a human being. And Ravaran understood that. So I, I think that was a, you need to be mafarsim, I think, uh, those type of things. There, there was another story, which is sort of similar to that, which has a little bit of a connection to your neck of the woods, I believe. He's looking at the long picture and cutting to the chase and really ripping apart the type of posturing and sense of self that people have. It says that he had a meeting with Rabbanim in the Bronx. Uh, maybe people that were connected to your to your community, uh, Eitan, about raising money for the yeshiva. And he told them in a moment of passion, In other words, the state of a lot, many American rabbis was getting your RCA sermon manual, making sure you had the droshes ready, maybe even publish them after you've collected them. But Ravari knew, and this was in the 50s, that the influence that the droshes had, whether they were in English and Yiddish, whatever, was minimal. Where if he could get them to somehow give tzedakah, whether it was with uh, with a bren or not, that would automatically ensure Olam Haba in terms of Kiyom and Arbatsa Satayra. Once again, Rapper mentions how angry they were. Well, let me tell you, I, I can't tell you how closely this tracks with a story that my that that happened with my father and with a colleague of Ravarin's by the name of Ramesha Feinstein, just very briefly, and also said in the Bronx, which again, as you've alluded to, listeners may not know, is, is my home turf. Uh, Bronx, uh, not born, but Bronx bred boy, I am. And uh, at one point, my father was the, uh, was, uh, had been selected as the, the chairman of the um, Malaba Malka. Yeah. So once a year, there will be a Malaba Malka for the benefit of Ferris Yushalayim in Pelham Parkway. And, you know, the Rabbanim would come from all over the Bronx. So the way things had always been was that. The Rosh Hashiva would come up. He would schlep up from the Lower East Side. You know, someone would drive him up. And uh, he would sit there. And the Rabbonim, would, one by one, would get up. These European Rabbonim, who, by the way, didn't use the RCA manual because it wasn't written in their language. They were speaking in Yiddish. And uh, they'd get up one at, one after the other and give their drushes, leaving Reb Moshe Feinstein, the Rabbin Shal Yisroel, to give his drush at the end. That year, my father became the chairman of the Malava Malka. He changed things around. He said, no, no, no. Reb Moshe is going to speak first. Then the rest of you will speak. You understand what this did to the crowd. <laughs> because once Reb Moshe spoke, half to three quarters of the crowd filed out. They were not interested in hearing Rabbi so-and-so's drusha. But my father said, you mean to tell me you're going to have Reb Moshe Feinstein? You're going to have him spend two to three hours on a, on a Matzah Shabbos when he could be learning, and he could be doing everything else he's doing for Klai Yisrael. He's going to sit there listening to your drushes? No, no, no. He had him speak first. The hall emptied out, and were they fuming at him? Were they fuming at him? Probably same as some of the same people who were fuming at Rebaran back then. But this is what it was. You know, I think this is a theme in our conversations here. Last time we spoke, this time we speak, talking about, you know, Rabbanim, Rabbanim, and, uh, you know, Rabbanim. And uh, <laughs> yes. they weren't always, uh, listen, they were they were good people and uh, meant well, but, uh, you know. It's interesting that you say that because I, I don't remember who made this point, but I, I've heard it in the from, I guess, orthodox sociologists 
that Rav Aaron, of course, represented a brand new chapter in Torah leadership, where the Rosh Hashivas became the leaders and the directors of the community, as opposed to the rabbis. And the yeshivas really came into preeminence. And they say at Rav Aaron's Levaya that, again, it was Rosh Hashivas who spoke, not the Rabbonim. I know Rabbi Lazar Silver, of course, arrived on a helicopter uh, that came in and, at the Pan Am building. And he was like one of the few Rabbonim uh, that was able to speak, I think, at the very end. But I think many people noted, and it's been noted since, that with the ascension of entry of Lakewood and the Lakewood power, that the leadership of a community was more in the hands of Rosh Yeshiva than they were in Rabbanim. And I think that's part of what we're saying here about Rav Aaron and Rav Meisha. What's Again, this just parenthetically, it's interesting that the, the book brings out, I mean, I'm familiar with Rav Aaron's Chuvas on a number of issues, especially about opening refrigerators and other things. But it sounds like, as, you, as, as your, your article points out, that he was the playsick for the Bachar. I didn't know that Rav Aaron, people called Rav Aaron Ibaral for Shilas. I didn't know that. But I, of course, I mean, obviously, his shlita in, in the Makairis was outstanding. But you don't look at Rav Aaron necessarily as a, as a Pesach, right? Well, I, don't th- I, don't think, I don't think we make the point here that, uh, that other people would call him. But the, in, within the yeshiva, the boys would turn to him. And he was more than capable of rendering, you know, psak. I mean, that's that's what we were saying. I mean, a true Adam Gadol, generally one would hope that, an, you know, an Adam Muslim, a Tamachal Muslim, would be able to, you know, to bask in in, in, in Abichel Kishokhan Aruch as well, which, which he was able to do. But I just, you know, just to address that point, which is a trope that you have certainly among, you know, uh, historians of American Orthodoxy and so on. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a denigrating sense. But that's certainly a theme that is very often sounded, this whole idea of a struggle between Rabbanim and Rashi Yeshiva and how Rashi Yeshiva for the past many, many decades, you know, have had the upper hand in that and you're tracing it back to Rabbanim. But I, I think that, you know, to whatever, whatever extent that's true and, and, and whatever the merits of that are, um, and by the way, there was a famous piece by... Um, uh, Emmanuel Jacobowitz in tradition back in the 60s, I think, in which he he kind of uh, lit a match under that whole explosive topic of rabbis versus Rosh Yeshiva. Uh, it was, and there was a very, very pungent response by Marvin Schick, of all people, to, to Emmanuel Jacobowitz. But uh, I think that it's not just about the personalities and the question of a power struggle between different groups of personalities. It's about the ascendancy of B'nai Taira as a whole. Whereas the point is that with Rab Aaron, a community of B'nai Torah began to congeal, coalesce, and become ascendant in the from uh, landscape in America, you know. And when you have a community of scholars and you have a community of laymen, well, really, who should who should be ascendant and who who should really have the the the, the position of preeminence? One would think it would be you know in in a genuine Torah community, it would be those who are Yoide Torah. Those who are B'nai Taira, those who are Tamil Chachamim. And if they're led by Rosh Yeshiva, then it's going to be the Rosh Yeshiva, you know, as well, who are going to have that, that position of, of preeminence. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's more, than, more than just this, this power struggle between personalities as it's sometimes portrayed. Yeah, look, like I said, it is a different topic, but I think you can see in 
in what you say about Ravaran, you can see those elements that allowed Ravaran and his Talmudim to not only because of how passionate they were, uh, but also, as you could say, looking at the big picture, seeing things, and all, and also not seeing things in a binary way, uh, being able to see that this is the right thing to do because of of another better good, of something that's even more important, even in terms of midos and derecheretz. Uh, it isn't necessarily, as you as we said last time, if you have to come down to the psak and the shulchan aruch, you, you might already be pushing towards the B'dievet. I'm thinking about, again, the, the one of the last stories that you mentioned about Rav Aaron, where he sort of was mitzavah the Bokhrim, uh to take haircuts with this fellow who had been a, a Machal Shabbos, and he he was on a bus with Rav Aaron. I guess Rav Aaron was taking the bus back to, to Lakewood, and he met this person, and they were talking. Even though the person told him he was an expert barber, which Rabbi Pear says he wasn't, Rav Aaron made a deal with him that uh, if he stops being Machal Shabbos, he'll allow him to get that extra parnosa as a barber. I'm not sure if he gave up his other job and just became a barber, but because it looks like he was a barber in his own bedroom, in his own house, and all the Bachram knew they had to do that. And this is sort of an example of sort of a, a Musr Dikipsak. And there might have even been, you know, Bitozman in terms of waiting, but Ravarin understood. First of all, he had said he would do it. And secondly, what it means to to to, to allow a yid to be Shaiba Shabbos. And it's sort of the incredible things that are intertwined, Eitan, in knowing how to be a leader. Uh you think there's certain directives and you have to follow them and you go by the book. Ravarin wrote the book. And I think that's part of, you know, as, 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 as what, what it brings out. It might be Rabbi Pear's story primarily, but I think you this, you have the schus of at least showing you what that book was about uh, vis-a-vis the students there and a number of other things. Okay, let's end today. You don't need Colbert to talk about the Boston Rebbe. It's one of the first tributes in the book. I don't know if the order is significant, if you had a, control over which one gets first. No, I did not. But this, I believe, although it's out of town and it's Boston, and those are things you're attracted to, this isn't your bread and butter, the Chesidah Shevelt. not invested in it. Yeah, you, this is not your bread and butter, the Chesidah Shevelt. And yet, I think it had an effect on you. <laughs> I got the sense that you became a shtickle more of a Chassid after Listen, you investigated who the Boston Rebbe was, what, what can I do? We had to we had to get our token Rebbe in there. You know what I mean? <laughs> couldn't uh, couldn't lay a claim to um, pluralism had we not done so. So right, but you you got a Rebbe that was a very different Rebbe, as you describe him. No question about as it. you mentioned about what he did in Boston, uh, quoting the Rebbe's son. Beneath the layers of Mikariv, Rov. And medical advocate, the many splendored Boston Rebbe remained in his essence just that, a Rebbe, a noble heir to multiple generations of Hasidic greatness. It was from that essence, from the heart of a Rebbe, pulsating with love for his own flock and for the straying and ailing sheep too, that all else flowed. So it seems that from what you put into that sentence, that he struck a chord, the amazing story of the Boston Rebbe, his father and himself, the Bostoners' uh, children, um, 
I even liked the fact that, and which was something that always was interesting to me, why he was called the boss in the river, that his father wanted people, it was Anivus, his father didn't want people to think that he was on the Madrega of the Rebbes of Europe. Yeah. Right. It's almost as if he, he could have chosen the title second class of Rebbe. <laughs> right. So let it be Boston. Right. 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 But you mentioned how he married a stepdaughter of the Cleveland Rebbe, right? The Cleveland Makarova <laughs> Rebbe. So you have Boston, Cleveland. The great coming together of the American League East. <laughs> See, the, well, you have the Braves. Maybe at that time you had the you had the Boston Braves from the National League. I think were there when the when that was happening. But yeah, but you're right. Cleveland. I don't ever think had a National League team, did they? I don't think so. Not that I know. Yeah, I don't think they did. But you know what's really, of course, fantastic. I I met the Boston Rebbe a number of times. I learned in Shiva Miami. I mentioned to you. And that was the place that donors would come in the winter. And that was the place the Boston Rebbe knew he had to be in order to uh, help fund what he was so well known for, which is Rofe. And one of the things that you make clear here, that he wasn't raising money that would necessarily pay medical bills. But it was, first of all, to have an achsanya for people who were coming to use the the world-class facilities in Boston. That was something that, that he worked tirelessly for. And, and the other was, of course, to staff Rofe with people that knew their jobs well enough to allow people to get the appointments with these specialists. And one of the things that uh, the Rebbe's son uh, said over to you, which I think is is very important for people to know, it leads into a a great story as well. You're quoting uh, Yosef David Hollander. He said, the non-from and non-Jewish doctors alike respected him greatly and were happy to give him of their time. But he wouldn't ask them to provide their services gratis or at a reduced fee. He'd only use his connections to gain access to top doctors and to enable patients to be seen and treated without a long wait. As his network and reputation grew, it became a matter of prestige to help the Rebbe, and he would honor physicians at Rofe's dinner. So on, on the heels of that, you, you mentioned Mayor Wickler, who seems to have been your main contact for the Bosna Rebbe. And the story, again, really, I think, needs to be heard. A girl from Eretz Yisrael received three months of treatment, resulting in a six-figure hospital bill. Through the standard negotiating process, which could have been done even by any patient, the Rebbe, who did the negotiating, was able to reduce the charges to $20,000, the sum he knew the father had raised for his anticipated medical bills. But his elation turned to shock when the man said he'd pay only 10000 arguing that he needed the balance for a dowry for another daughter. Again, the echoes of Eretz Yisrael are very strong <laughs> when you hear that sentence. But this is the, the powerful if you walk away from this hospital bill, the Rebbe pleaded, they're not going to take another yid from Eretz Yisrael. You're ruining it for all future patients. When the fellow remained obstinate, the Rebbe didn't say another word and instead paid the $10,000 balance from his own pocket. And again, this is, is such a Musr Haskell. We don't realize we're so steeped in our own situation that what happened there in Rofe which was a mess in terms of the amount of people that were able to be seen and to be helped. But you need to realize that you are part of something bigger. 
And the Rebbe understood this. The Rebbe understood that it was bigger than you. It was about others that could come and that he took the money from his own pocket. Again, it really shows uh, the Rebbe's understanding, his greatness. I have to tell you that he was the most approachable, normal person to talk to. I spoke with him probably 25 to 30 times in Miami. A, a, a bocher that I was told to learn with, to help along, who was a had some who was getting better in learning, was very close to the Rebbe's family. And through him, I got to speak to the Rebbe often. He spoke to you like he was speaking to an equal. When I would talk to him about chesidus, about learning, he, he did. He had no sense of imperiousness whatsoever. And I think in your in, in your tribute, you talk about the the Purims that they had there, the ability to laugh at himself, to have a Purim Rebbe, and even I, I think what allowed him to be a magnet to all the intellectuals, professors, thinkers, other people who moved to Boston was a sense that this this was a Rebbe who who had a magic that could really embrace everything without dogma and without necessarily some sort of ped, some sort of aim that now you're I'm going to turn you into this type of chassid. You know, again, it's not Lubavitch that we're talking about here. We're talking here about a type of kiruv that is that is really outstanding and fantastically unique. Again, you, whether like you say, whether it's the Bredichever or Shmelk of Nikolsberg, whatever it is that somehow in his veins that's uh, that's allowing him to do that, the Rebbe's success is something that uh, is like you call it. Uh, I know you couldn't resist once it was Beacon Street. <laughs> the lighthouse has to the lighthouse had to be in the in, in the title, but there is something about what he was able to accomplish there that it's 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 it's, it's fantastic because. The Rebbe did not display it at all. He did not uh, have people dance in front of him. He didn't go go with a shtekin. There was even the- here's someone who who had the pedigree that he could very easily, you know, have uh, fallen back on and have affected that kind of demeanor. He was someone who had a, a, a greater yichus than almost anyone you can think of, and yet, uh, like you say, as down to earth as could possibly be. And you see it in his children as well. I mentioned to you off pod that his son came here to my city and I give a shear every night for deer shoe, as you know. And, you know, there's three or four fellows there. Maybe at that time there might have been five or six. By the time he came in, we were learning Mishnah Bura, I believe, which was, you know, we did the Gemara. Now it's time to Mishnah Bura. Something which the Rebbe was before he came from Mincha. It was 10 minutes before Mincha. He sat, he opened up the Mishnah Bura. He was looking. He was engaging. We were talking. Uh, and I have to tell you that, you know, other Balabatim who come in, it's sort of tough for them to sit down. It's like, oh, I don't want to become a student of him, right? right it's a pasmanisht, you know? So the, even though I would many times, I, I wave the Mishnah Brewer and says, oh, we've got an extra one. They go and they sit on the side. The Rebbe made a beeline to the table, sat there, this is this was his son, Remeyer, who sat there like a Talmud in front of me. Uh, and and it's, it's no question to me. And I have to tell you, I was once calling up Rev Naftali. I called him up about a shidduch in Boston right away. There was no secretary. I got him going. He gets on the phone. We talked for 45 minutes about a certain shidduch for a certain possibility. That down-to-earth Baal type of 
approachability is something that somehow the Harwitzes in Boston were able to 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 have and to bottle and to and, and to really distill. I think that last point is important. You know, it's it's not something that's in contradistinction to their yichus. I think it's very much in line with their yichus. I think it's Balshemtiv dick, as you say. It's Berdichev dick. You know, it's it's Nicholsburg dick. It's it's uh, really and and his Rebbitson, I think, was also a, a Nicholsburg einakol. This was a great story, and I guess we could sort of see that. Obviously, it's Boston. It's not New York. It's not Borough Park. But I just love the story that one Yom Kippur, a woman walked into the Ezra's Noshim dressed like the Kayan Godel. No, right? She figures it's Yom Kippur, right? And you know, I guess that that's too good past, right? I don't know how she got the meal and the tzitz. I'm not sure how she got everything, but somehow she was able to, right? I I I I I shudder to think that she used tachrichim for part of them. I don't know, but she sat down in the back row, and over the course of several hours, she made her way up to the second row. And the Rebbitzin, this is the Bostoner's wife, looked over her shoulder and saw her. She said, "Oh, why don't you come and sit up here with me?" So instead of saying "Musfara Mishugan is do right, <laughs> no, sit down, and it's on Yom Kippur, and they're talking. So. The, the, so they're talking. The woman mentioned her interest in getting married, and asked if the Rebbitzin had any ideas for her. So the Rebbitzin replied, "If you want to meet, and again, this might be a verbatim quote. If you want to meet more guys, you might want to try getting rid of the Urim Betumim, which is such a great tongue-in-cheek way to show. Look, I'm not going to throw you out for being a Meshugana. I'm going to be Makariv you, and a real Makariv in ways that." The Lakewood community coils and other things and Lubavitchers, it's almost impossible to comprehend by being the authentic, true, open, giving people they were, that their home becomes the home for everyone, that that becomes the address. And and I and I, I, I even want to say that I think part of it, although you don't really imply this, is that he was the power, as much as Rav Soloveitchik was the official Rav of Boston, he was giving sheer in, in YU. He had Maimonides and Brookline area where he had his minion. But there was sort of a place for the Rebbe to fill that role. There was Rav Mordechai Savitsky. There was, a, there was a number of great Rabbonim and Iluyim. But I think part of it was Boston. And part of it was where, you know, that, you know, you could say that Levi Yitzchak Bika Matzah, that Bika he was able uh, to fill with the power of his personality and understanding. You know, but what, what's interesting in that connection is one might have thought that the, the academics, you know, from the Boston, in, in the Boston college community, which, you know, you, we're talking Harvard, we're talking Tufts and MIT, et cetera. Obviously, it's a very, very, a renowned, you know, uh, community of, of intellectuals. And one would have thought that they would have been flocking to the Rav. And yet, uh, maybe perhaps some of them, and I think some of them did attend his shiurim, but it was really, you know, uh, Boston was the place to be in Simchas where hundreds and hundreds of college students and their professors, you know, uh, uh, packed uh, the Boston Ishtibol. And As you say, the trickle became a mighty stream. Yeah. I mean, someone like David Gottlieb, in fact, did go back and forth between the Rebbe and the Rav. But uh, it's interesting how, uh, 
you know, and the Rebbe could, could certainly hold his own, as I mentioned there. He was one of the few to get the Yodin Yodin Smicha, I think, from Rishleim Hyman, mm-hmm. if not mistaken, or Smicha, Smicha in general. So he was a, he was a, a Tamil Chacham of, of note. But at the end of the day, it was, it was the attitude, it was the embrace. It was the embrace that brought them in much more than, than the mind. You know, I've been with Rebbe's, American Rebbe's, and, and, and of course, they love to speak Yiddish, and I love to speak Yiddish too. Rabbi Rab Yitzchak Horowitz enjoyed speaking English with you. He would speak English with you, even though I, I tried speaking with him in Yiddish. No, we'll speak in English. Let's talk in English. There was no sense, oh, let's go into them. I have to tell you that I got brochus when I was in Miami from many of the people who arrived, and I never really thought to get a brocha from the Bostoner. I, I know for some reason, you know, there was the uh, the Satmarov, I was able to get a brocha from from the Skalena Rebbe, from the Rimenser Rebbe. Uh, oh, I got to get brochas. They were, the Bostoner was sort of like, yeah, he's he's the Bostoner. He fooled you into in, into not, not even thinking of him as a Rebbe when you still were right. And but in your tribute, you actually mentioned someone who did get a brocha from the Bostoner Rebbe, and again, it was a very wonderful anecdote that you add into the story. So I'll read some of it here. Rabzi Travis was in a horrific car crash in Maine, and the only chance for survival being an airlift to Boston by private plane. Rav Naftoli said, my father contacted President Kennedy, whom he knew from his years as a congressman, then senator, and he advised getting hold of his brother Ted, who was then in a tight race for U.S. Senate. The latter, that's Ted Kennedy, sent his personal plane for the airlift. And when he asked for a blessing to win his Senate race, my father said, I bless you to win all the Senate races you're in. He went on to be a long-serving senator. But when some years later he was mulling a run for president and he wanted a blessing or a brocha to become president, (laughs) you have the Senate? Let's not talk about the presidency. So... It's a pella here that not just the liberal-leaning tendencies of Massachusetts electorate, but the brocha of the Bostoner is what somehow kept uh, Ted Kennedy. And the schus, of course, that he had of being matzo and nefesh Israel of giving his plate. So in many ways, like really indicates the incredible far reach that Hasidus could have. I, I think in, in a way, you know, we talk about the Tversky's, and you know, how they have established themselves in many academic positions uh, of great influence, deans of, of schools uh, and, and writers and, and psychologists. And I would say that Dr. Tversky was who he was as a chassid and a rebbe, but also a doctor. You know, <laughs> the same thing could be true about many of them. They there was no conflict. They were able to synthesize these two sides of themselves and be standouts in both. In the Rebbe of the Boston Rebbe, though, he somehow is able to not just stand in two worlds and have parts of himself in one world and in another world, but he really was able to almost be like an oramakif that can include everything. And, And I think that really, in a way, is such a life-affirming uh, story. It's, it, it tells you about how great chassidus can be. The idea of chassidus being 
way of just sticking your head in the sand and running and just trying to hold on to old traditions uh, that are crumbling while you're doing that is really shown to be completely false by the life that the Boston Rebbe lived. Eitan, you have a schus, I think, in terms of restoring people's appreciation for what this is, what these great Bali Musa were. However unintended that may be, as we speak of Hasidus, I, I, as the, the Litvak in me has to add that caveat. <laughs> I fully uh, uh, agree with your description, but uh, perhaps in a, an unintended positive uh, uh, consequence. There's still time, Eitan. You know, me and you are going to. We'll talk in. A, we'll talk in a month from now. We'll see. Maybe maybe stuff will start see, seeping in by then. All right, that's it, my friends. Eitan, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully we'll be back soon with another edition of Close to Mishpacha. Be well, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.